If you would, take your Bibles, please, and turn to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17, it's page 59 in your pew Bible. You'll notice the title of the sermon this morning is Walk by Faith, Not by Sight. That's a Christian phrase that we use very often uh, that's great. Uh, It's very accurate. We are called as Christians to walk by faith in God, not by sight, not just always wanting to know exactly the purpose in everything or explain to me why I'm going through this, God. He asks us many times to walk by faith. Not that these two ideas are mutually exclusive, but often we are called to walk by faith, not by sight. And this story this morning is a great case study, if you will, an example of God calling his people to walk with him by faith. So let me read for us Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the people, What shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders in Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let me pray. O Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts to the truth of your word this morning and that you would give us the strength to walk with you by faith. We would not always insist on understanding that we would trust you with everything in our life, no matter big, how big or how small. Would you teach us now from your word? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There was a physics teacher named Ken Davis, and he was trying to illustrate to his class one day the law, the, the physics law, the law of the pendulum. The law of the pendulum states, let's say you have a fixed point, and there's a string coming down from that fixed point to a ball. The law of the pen, this being the pendulum, you raise the pendulum up to a certain level and you let it go, the ball will swing, but it will never return to the point that it was released from because of the laws of gravity that are acting upon it. Okay, I hope that makes sense. But he's trying to illustrate this to his class, and so he asks them, who in here believes in the law of the pendulum that I just described to you? you know, of course, everybody raised their hand, yeah, whatever, big deal. Well, I'd like a volunteer, he asks. So... This kid in the back of the room raises his hand and he asks the student to go sit up on a stage that he had set up in the room and in a chair on top of that stage. Now in the middle of the classroom with a bungee cord into the steel beams in the, in the, in the classroom, there was a 250-pound ball attached to the end of this bungee cord. And through a series of pulleys, he raises this ball up to right in front of the student's face. Not touching his face, but right in front of it. So he asks the student again, Do you believe in the law of the pendulum, this physics law that I've just described to you? And he's not so sure at that point, right? Sweat kind of coming down his face a little bit. Yes, I believe in the law of the pendulum. 
So the teacher lets the ball go. It goes swinging across the classroom. And it begins its way back. And the teacher, Ken Davis, would later remark he has never seen the student move that fast as when he dove out of the chair. (laughs) He wanted nothing to do with that ball might (laughs) crush my face. You see, it was easy to say that he believed in the law of the pendulum when he was sitting in the classroom listening to the teacher explain it. But when his belief in that law was actually put to the test, he didn't believe it at all. (laughs) Wanted nothing to do with it. You know, we can sit here in the pews on Sunday, we can sit in Sunday school and say, yes, Lord, I want to walk with you by faith and not by sight. I believe in you, I trust in your promises, I know what you have done for me many times before, but when that faith is actually tested, often we want nothing to do with it. We grumble, we gripe, we complain, we're not so sure about God anymore despite all that he promises in his word and despite all that he has done for us in the past. We really want to walk by sight and not by faith. So our passage this morning is an exhortation to us. It's telling us, don't be like the children of Israel. Be like Moses. Don't respond to adversity in your life like the children of Israel do, but do the things that Moses did. And and the person, the God that Moses trusted in. And again, we see in in uh, in these verses the graciousness of God despite the thanklessness and the sinfulness of man. Don't be like the children of Israel. Problems arise in their life, and they had no care for what God might do for them. Not remembering that just months before, he had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. It's as if they just grumble in the current situation because they want to understand how and exactly the Lord's going to provide for them, and they do not want to trust. Moses, on the other hand, what does he do when faced with these situations? He goes immediately to prayer. Immediately stops doesn't assume what's going to happen, and prays to God. It's as if he's done this many times before. So here's the proposition. Because God delivered his people from Egypt, and for us, because Christ died on the cross for us, we have been enabled by him to walk by faith and not by sight. You see, the big event for Old Testament believers is what they looked back to was the Exodus. That was the big deliverance from slavery, deliverance from, from bad. <laughs> For us, we look back to the cross. That was our big deliverance. It's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. He says, in view of God's mercies, in view of all that he's done for you, therefore you've been enabled to live a life as a living sacrifice for him. You look back to these events so that you may follow him more closely. So let's look at this passage in three ways. First, the people grumbled. Secondly, Moses prayed. And then finally, God provided. So number one, the people grumbled. Exodus chapters 13 through 18 are the first two months of the wilderness wanderings for the children of Israel. In in Exodus chapter 12, that's the last plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn. You remember the, the, uh, the Israelites or anyone who wanted to be saved by the blood of the lamb had to put the blood on their doorpost. And then the death angel would pass over them and wouldn't kill them. These are the first two months. So it's not like years and years have passed. It may be they've forgotten. It's, this just happened, and now they're already grumbling. We have six stories for these, from these first two months, three of which include grumbling or complaining by the children of Israel. The story is a great example of us, our patient, our long-suffering God, in the face of plain and blatant mistrust by his people. 
How could they have already started to grumble? Did they not just see what God did? Did they forget all the promises? Did they, what's going on here? Why such ingratitude? They grumble about bitter water that happened just a couple chapters prior. God makes the water sweet for them. They grumble about the food that they don't have, and they desire to go back to Egypt and eat all the great food that they used to have, and God sends them miraculously manna from heaven. And now they come to a new situation. Well, this time, there's no water at all. And they go right into grumbling again. Ingratitude most certainly is the mark of a faithless person, not showing God thankfulness and gratitude for what he's done for us. In verse 2, it says that the people quarreled with Moses. It's a stronger word than we think. It's not that they were just kind of disagreeing with one another. They were having some kind of an argument. The Hebrew word here is actually to strive with somebody. In other words, they weren't just mad at him. They intended to harm him because they're blaming him for the water that they don't have. They're contending with Moses, which was really they're contending with God. So Moses shoots back at him. Why are you testing the Lord by this? And then they double down on their complaint. Moses, you've brought us out here to kill us. You've brought us out here to die. They're charging, really, they're charging Moses with a crime. And so Moses turns to God and says, what are we going to do with this people? They're, they're about to kill me. They're about to stone me, he says. Complaint after complaint after complaint. There was a story once told of a monk who joined a monastery. And upon joining this monastery, he took a vow of silence. But his superior said, every 10 years, I want you to come in here and give me a report on what you've learned. So the first 10, year pa- 10 years pass, and he comes into his superior's office, and what do you have to say? What have you learned? And the monk looked at him and said, the food is bad. That's all you got? Yeah, that's all I got. 10 more years pass. He comes in. What do you have to say? My bed is really hard. That's, that's all. Yeah, that's all. So he comes in 10 years later. Do you have anything to say? He says, yeah, I quit. So his superior says, well, I'm not surprised. All you've done since you've got here is complained. The Lord provides for Israel, and they complain. He protects them, they complain. He delivers them, they complain. He does miraculous things in their presence, and they complain. Yes, the people are tired and thirsty, but don't they remember what God has done for them? The grumbling really arises from an unbelief in what God can do for them. The past provisions that he has given them clearly have vanished from their thoughts. They don't expect anything from God. All they want to do is complain and quarrel with Moses. But aren't we, too, often quick quick and we rush in to be upset with God for getting his promises? Israel had God's promises that he would protect them, give them a land, deliver them from enemies. They saw the exodus. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw the manna come down from heaven. They drank bitter water and then sweet water. They simply just didn't believe in God. They didn't believe that he either had the ability or was willing to do the same thing in the next situation. You see, our experience with God often is exactly like the Israelites. You read this story and you get very frustrated with them. I can't believe they would do this. What a bunch of knuckleheads. Why would they have done this and said this and thought this? Did they just have short memories? But we're not any different. One trial in our life is over and the next day you're already grumbling about something else. 
Many of you, uh, and I'm very thankful for this, prayed for Lauren and me as we were trying to sell our house in Birmingham, which we did. We closed on it at the beginning of January. But I remember when we got the contract on the house, we'd prayed and prayed, and many of you had prayed for us, and we were so excited that we finally got the contract on the house. But I remember the very next day, us sitting, sitting in our living room complaining about something else. When is God going to let us this happen? When is he going to deliver us from this thing? Ungrateful. We get through one thing, and on the heels of that, we're complaining about something else. What, what is it going to take for you to finally trust the Lord with your money, with your children, with your life? What more does he have to prove to you that he's adequate and willing to do these things? Alec Moter, in his commentary on this passage, says this. More than anything else, what bothers us when trouble comes is our loss of a sense of purpose. Do you feel that? We cannot see why things are happening to us, and it is at this point that Exodus addresses us most forcefully. The God who created us and redeemed us never ceases to work out his purposes for the whole cosmos, for the church, and for every individual in Christ. This was how it was for the Exodus pilgrims, and it remains true for us today that nothing ever touches us except by God's determination and in accordance with his will and in order to achieve his purpose. He is too great, and he loves us too much to allow it to be otherwise. When another trial or hardship happens to us, the logical conclusion for us is to ask why. Why, God, are you allowing this to happen to me? And we question him anew. Instead of grumbling and complaining, why don't, we vent, why don't we begin to see it as an invitation that he has given us to trust him, rather than just another excuse to be upset? We talk about God testing our faith as if he needs to see what, how the strength of our faith really is, as if we're, he's testing us to learn something about us. He knows how strong your faith is. He's very aware of that. He's testing our faith so that we would trust him in a new way and maybe stronger. He knows the kind of faith you have, but maybe you need to see again how mighty and good he is. The test is to remind you how feeble you are and how great he is. So number one was the people grumbled. Number two, Moses prayed. What's your first response when, when God gives you something that you just can't see the purpose in? It's to complain. Here we go again, God's going to let me suffer. Here we go again, here's another test. Satan's out to get me. Maybe I've strayed away from the will of God, or maybe I just got it wrong. We blame someone else for our difficulties. Maybe there's some truth in each one of those. But the story in Exodus is telling us the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness. The Israelites confronted these problems specifically because the Lord had allowed it to be so. So the text here is begging us to answer a couple of questions. What are you going to do when you confront the next thing which you just can't see the purpose of, the next difficult situation. You could do what probably you normally do. You get angry, you get fearful, you doubt, and you, and you lose belief. You lose hope in who God is and what he can do. But what are you saying when you do that? You give no regard for what God has done for you in the past, no regard for his character, no regard for his promises, no regard for his love for you. And the focus is upon you and how you feel. Or, you could prayerfully lean upon God as Moses does, which gives all regard for who he is, all regard for what he's done for you and his character and what he promises. Moses 
when confronted with the same situation, he's in this too, he's in the same boat as the Israelites, what does he do? He immediately prays. It seems to be the routine for Moses, just what he normally does. He turns to his heavenly father and say, what are we going to do now? Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. It's what we do. We talk to our Heavenly Father. We talk to the God who loves us, who provides for us, who who takes care of our needs. It's just what we do as Christians. So when you receive that difficult phone call, when the job doesn't quite turn out the way you thought it would, when, when stuff in life just doesn't happen the way you want it to, when the car breaks down again, when the school doesn't accept you that you really hoped would accept you, don't grumble. Get down on your knees and say, Lord, What are we going to do this time? Show yourself to me again. Make your way clear for me. If you come to the Wednesday uh, luncheon lesson, uh, I shared this story not too long ago. Uh, Brian Chappell was the uh, president of Covenant Seminary for about 15 years. But upon becoming the president of Covenant Seminary, our our denomination seminary, he was nervous, as he explains in his book, Praying Backwards. He was nervous about all that he had to do. It was a big responsibility. He was excited about it, but there were some, some things he wanted to change in the seminary, and so he, he wanted to get some advice. So he drove down to Birmingham, Alabama, and he had lunch with Frank Barker. Frank Barker, who was at the time, he was the founding pastor of Briarwood and was the pastor at the time of this, of this story. So he sits down at a restaurant with Frank Barker, and he, for about 15 minutes, as he said, goes into all these things he's concerned about, he's fearful about. I don't know what to do about this, and what do you think about this? Asking Frank for his advice. And finally, at the end of that, Frank Barker looks at him and said, Well, Brian, we need to pray about this. And they stopped and prayed. I sat in Frank Barker's office about one year ago today, and I told him that I was looking for a new, jo- a new call in ministry. I told him I was excited about it, but I was very fearful. I didn't exactly know what the Lord wanted for me. And so I went into this long thing about how I was afraid, and I just didn't know, and He said, Andy, we need to pray about this. When he looks up from his desk at his office, he looks to a picture on the back of his wall. It looks 500 years old. It has two words on it. It's this cross stitch. It says, ask him. Every time he looks up from his desk, he sees that in his line of sight. It says, ask him. No matter what the situation is, no matter if it's big, no matter if it's tiny, the littlest thing that could be going on in his life, he's always reminded, ask him. Because clearly this man knows, I've got to ask him for everything. He's my God. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. He loves me. I've got to ask him. No matter how big, no matter how small. We're reminded of this in Proverbs chapter 3. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings. But in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. In everything, ask him. So lastly, God provided. God now tells Moses what he wants him to do. I want you to go on ahead to people. I want you to take some elders because you need some witnesses to, about, to what's about to happen. And take your rod. The rod that you struck the Nile River with and it turned to blood. The, the one that you raise over your head and it gives victory to the armies. Take that rod. You see, the children of Israel, they were striving with, with Moses, but quite literally they wanted a legal trial. That's what, they want to put Moses on trial for what they've done. They've accused him of taking, him out to, taking them out to the wilderness to kill them. 
or that they might die from not having uh, food or not having water. They want a trial. Moses is going to oblige them. But they're certainly not going to get the trial in the way that they think they should or the one that they want. They're about to get a verdict. But it says very interestingly in verse 6 that God stands before Moses. It's usually the other way around. In fact, it almost always is. That man stands before God, but here God is standing before man. God is the one on trial. God is the one that's about to receive the judgment. So Moses takes this rod of judgment and he strikes the rock upon which God is standing. He carries out the judgment. Not what the people were expecting. And as a result, water comes gushing out of this rock. It comes from nothing. God creates something out of nothing. God is the one that is judged. But he's not guilty. He didn't do anything wrong. The judgment wasn't wanted. For, they didn't want it for God. They want it for Moses. And as a result, the people are saved. They're given this life-giving water. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul expounds upon this very story when he says, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, excuse me, God was not pleased. For they, for they were overthrown in the wilderness, though these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Now, Paul's saying a lot here, but let's focus on two things. The children of Israel were baptized in the Moses. What does that mean exactly? Well, they passed through the Red Sea with Moses. And Moses, at this point, is acting as their mediator. He's the go-between between Israel and God. So they are in Moses, so to speak. For us, who is our mediator? Christ is our mediator. We are baptized into him because he is the go-between between us and the Father. So we are in Christ just as they were in Moses. And then Paul gives us further connection with the Exodus story by proclaiming that the rock in this story is none other, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And the rod of judgment that I mentioned that came crashing down on the rock is the one that in a representative way comes crashing down on Christ. He receives the judgment for the grumbling sinful people. They're the ones that committed the crime. The trial takes place in the presence of the elders. They can serve as a witness. They see the water that's poured forth. Moses is not the one who goes on trial. But haven't we seen this before? Haven't we seen man being the one who's the covenant breaker, but God receiving the judgment for that? If you read Genesis chapter 15, Dr. Cofield even mentioned this last weekend, there's this strange story where all these animals are cut up and they're they're put, they're put on the side, and God walks between these animal pieces. It's just like you or me when we sign on the dotted line of a contract. Just a little bit more bizarre, right? At least in, in our thinking. God walks between the pieces, and what he's exclaiming in Genesis 15 is, if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, then let my body be like these animal pieces. But he's saying more than that. Man, if you don't uphold your end of the bargain, then let my body be like these animal pieces. We sinned, we did what was wrong, God takes the judgment. Just as is happening here in Exodus 17. Does that sound familiar? Our sin, 
Our fear, our anger, our grumbling and complaining is what put Jesus Christ on that cross. We were the one that did the wrong. We were the one that deserved the trial. God went on trial for us. He took, he took the pain. He took the wrath. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Don't you see how wonderful this is? How do you receive something like this? How do we receive the grace that the Israelites received? Well, you first got to admit and see that yourself is a grumbler just as the people in this passage. That you're a sinner before God. That you deserve to be on trial, but God said, no, you step to the side. I'll take the trial for you. I'll take the punishment and the judgment. These grumbling Israelites gave God no praise despite his continued provision and care. During the Spanish-American War, Clara Barton, who was the founder of uh, the Red Cross, oversaw the work of the Red Cross in Cuba, and one day Colonel Theodore Roosevelt comes riding up to her. He said, I need some, I need some provisions. I need food for my men. What can you sell me? And she said, well, nothing I have here is for sale. What do you mean nothing's for sale? I, I need things for my men. Please, I have all the money that you need. Just let me have some stuff so that I can give to them. She says, none of this is for sale, Colonel, but why don't you just ask for it? A smile broke over Roosevelt's face. Now he understood. He just had to ask for the provisions, and they would be freely given to him. All he had to do was ask. Some of you may be here this morning, and you don't know Jesus Christ. You, some of this is resonating with you. You see yourself as a sinner. How do I receive this wonderful grace? Wasn't man to receive the judgment, but didn't? How do I know this Jesus? Ask him. Ask him. Ask him to show himself to you. Ask him to give you this grace and mercy that he gave to these Israelites. But pastor, you don't know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know how I've grumbled, how I've striven with God. You don't know what I've done. How can I receive this free grace? Well, the news is even better. You aren't judged on your works. You aren't judged on the things that you have or have not done. You will be judged on the righteousness of Christ. So ask him, ask Jesus to give you his life, to substitute for you. And once you begin this walk, he'll begin to clean you up. He'll begin to change you and make you more into his image. And for those of you who have been walking with the Lord for a long time, would you walk by faith and not by sight? Would you stop demanding to see the purpose in everything that happens to you? But patiently walk with him and wait to see what happens. Wait to see how he will provide for you because I promise he will do that again and again and again. Let me close with this quote from J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness. There must be a real heartfelt belief that God's promises are sure and to be depended on. A real belief that what God says in the Bible is all true and that every doctrine contrary to the Bible is false, whatever anyone might say. There must be a real belief that all God's words are to be received, however hard or disagreeable to flesh and blood, and that his way is right and all others are wrong. This there must be, or you will never come out from the world, take up your cross, follow Christ, and be saved. Don't miss these last two sentences. You must learn as Christians to believe promises better than possessions, things unseen better than things seen, things in heaven out of sight better than things on earth before your eyes, the praise of the invisible God better than the praise of visible man. Then and then only will you make a choice like Moses 
and prefer God to the world. Walk with him because of what he's done for you. Walk with him because of the cross. Consider what he's done. Consider the free grace that you have given. That's why you trust him. That's why you don't demand answers to everything, because of what he's already done for you. For those of you who don't know him, feel the sin burdening you, your conscience that's weighing down on you, and release that and put that upon Christ. And for those of you who trust Jesus, how much, what else are you expecting him to prove to you? He died on the cross for you. What more could he do? What more can he say before you really trust him? The thing that you have in your mind, if he would just do this or just provide that, would that really be enough? Walk with your Savior by faith. He loves and he cares for you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we confess to you that we are, we are stubborn, we grumble, we complain, but you continue to love and you continue to provide and you continue to be our God, and we thank you for that. Thank you for calling us to be your people. Lord, will you stir in the hearts of those that don't know you that they would put their hope in your grace and your mercy. Thank you so much for loving us. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction? Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.